This brings us to the cross itself, so if you would join me in John chapter 19. John 19, I'll begin reading in verse 23 down through verse 30. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our God in heaven, as we turn our attention to your truth, your living word, it is our hope that we're going to handle it carefully. And though there are mysteries before us, that your spirit will grant us a measure of understanding such that we see our Savior for who he is. We see our sinful condition for what it was. And we rejoice together that we are there no longer. We're under the blood of your Son. And I'm grateful for all that have gathered here this morning by faith in that Savior and in that finished work. But we also appeal to you for those that might be hearing these words and yet be without Christ. We pray that you would move in the heart as only you can do. Allow us to see the mysteries of what is taking place here several thousand years ago when our Savior was nailed to a cross and he bore our shame and our sin. And grant us that we might see him who we are to be like. We might see the example that he set that we might follow. And that we might see the glory that he has given to us in, eternal, in the eternal kingdom yet to come for us. We thank you for all that you give us in Christ. And we pray that we will follow with more devotion, more zeal, more eager to serve because we see our king for who he is this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the notable features about John's gospel, and I think that it's abundantly clear here in the passage before us, is that there are certain parts of John's account that are much briefer than the other gospel writers. And this is certainly the case as we come to verse 28 
And all we see in the final hours of the cross are these words after this. It is the other gospel writers that fill in those last final three hours of Christ's suffering. And this morning we're going to pause once again and we're going to turn to one of the other gospel writers because as we're making our way through John's account of the cross, we're taking in those seven declarations that Christ made from the cross that are recorded in God's word. Pausing long enough for us to capture a vision of what took place there when Christ bore our sins, taking our punishment that we deserved upon himself. The same time we're looking at certain parts of the life of Christ that are so critical that even though John overlooks or passes by them, we recognize that the other three synoptic writers went into more detail. And this is one of those critical moments for us. And it's not that John ignored those things. Again, John had his own purpose for writing this gospel. And in truth, he was inspired by the Spirit to write what he did. And we know that the Spirit's going to get it right. But John had another emphasis to infuse into the hearts and minds of his people. He is showing us our king and what our king was willing to endure that we might have life and that we might share in his eternal kingdom. What we can be sure of here is that the Holy Spirit directed each of the gospel writers as to what they were to record. And here at this most critical and this most essential point of our eternal redemption, John takes us from entrusting Mary to John's care in the previous verses to the final hour of the cross or the ninth hour of crucifixion day. Now, the ninth hour here marks from sunrise, which is approximately 6 a.m. in the morning, making this time around 3 p.m. So therefore, again, John has jumped from entrusting his mother into John's care to that ninth hour, around 3 p.m. And according to Mark, Jesus was crucified somewhere near the third hour of crucifixion day, or around 9 a.m. in the morning. And we can then estimate that Jesus was on the cross for about six hours from 9 a.m. or close to it to around 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour. And we're going to be focusing a little bit on that ninth hour and to some degree to the final three hours leading up to that ninth hour. John does not give to us any of the information that we find in the other Gospels of this time period. John describes some of what took place during the first half of the crucifixion. And then we come to verse 28, and this is where we read, After this, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, John jumps from the middle of the cross to the end where Jesus died with no further details. And again, this serves his gospel very well, as intended by the Holy Spirit. Yet because we are pausing to consider the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, we're going to begin by turning back to Matthew and Mark's account to consider the time of darkness in those last three hours of the Lord's crucifixion. And so if you're following along in your note sheet, this is where we want to begin. The first part of verse 28 in John's account, those two words, after this, we're going to look at that time of darkness that took place leading up to where John begins in verse 28. What both Matthew and Mark record is that at noon, three hours into the crucifixion, 
Darkness came over the land, and it continued for the next three hours until Jesus breathed his last. And what this marks out in the timeline of the crucifixion is the period of Christ's suffering when God turns his wrath against his son. The sins of God's people are laid upon the son, and he becomes defiled with our sin according to the scripture. God then pours out his judgment on his son, a judgment suitable to our sins that we have earned because of our sin. And when God caused darkness to come over the land, he was showing that this is the time. This is the time of judgment where the darkness of our sins were receiving what they deserve. So turn with me back to Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27. And we will look at Matthew's record of these three hours of darkness. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. Matthew and Mark both write that coming to the end of this three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out in anguish to God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the fourth and the most dramatic, I would say, of the seven sayings of Christ from the cross as recorded in Scripture. It's filled with meaning, it is filled with mystery, and it also marks the climax of the Lord's greatest suffering at Calvary. When Jesus was brought before Annas and Caiaphas, as well as the Roman judges, they're rejected by the Jewish community. He was beaten, he was filled, fitted with a crown of thorns, he was scourged, he was mocked and nailed to a cross. All of that suffering came by the hands of men. But when Jesus cried out in wonder that God had forsaken him, it marked the suffering that had come upon the Son from the hand of God himself. Now again, there is a great deal of mystery behind these words. And this is because between Father and Son, there's a transaction taking place here on the cross that is occurring in the spiritual unseen realm. Furthermore, we could ask as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he not understand, did Jesus not understand the full weight of the penalty that he would have to endure? Did he not discern that? Or is Jesus crying out this question to inform us, this is what he must do for us. This is what must be accomplished for our sins. In other words, was Jesus informing us by the question, Or was his response to the Father's judgment unknown to him? It may well be a combination of both. Most certainly, when Jesus cried out loudly, he was intending for others to hear him. It was intended to be audible. And while I believe that Jesus understood in some measure that bearing on our sin would cause his Father to turn away, nonetheless, you can envision God the Son had never experienced this kind of rejection before. This kind of break in the fellowship within the Godhead had never been experienced by the Son. 
What was he then to expect? Would he have been uncertain about the father's disfavor with him at that moment? And we'd have to say, well, certainly, to some degree, even the Son of God was not prepared fully for this kind of break within the Godhead. For the Son to be forsaken by the Father was something never before endured until now. And surely this in itself would have caused Jesus to question, why God? While we may not fully understand all of the mysteries of this sacred moment, the hours of darkness are climaxed by this declaration by the Savior, and it teaches us several realities. So we want to take a moment and consider these realities. Number one, this expression was declaring the wretchedness of sin to God. It is the wretchedness of sin that has caused this hour of darkness, or these three hours of darkness. And this cry tells us that during these three hours, the beloved Son of God has lost for that moment the favor of his Father. Because when it says that he forsook forsook his Son at that moment, it was a declaration that more than just God turning away and not looking at his Son. The word forsake means to leave behind or to desert someone. The eternal bond of love and perfect fellowship between father and son had in some way been broken during this awful moment. And the words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 help this this reality to sink into us just a little bit when it says God made him, the son who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Imagine the sinless God becoming sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's an amazing statement about God's Holy Son. This is what theologians have called dual imputation. Our sins imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us as believers. And I think we have to be very careful with this kind of doctrine. Because on the cross, Jesus did not become a sinner. Since it's sinlessness is what qualified him to be there in the first place. Rather, when our sins were laid upon him, God treated him as if he were a sinner for us all. God treated his son as if he were a sinner. God punished his son with the judgment that we deserve for violating and rejecting the laws of righteousness. And the punishment that Jesus suffered under the hand of his father was at least partially exposed in this cry of anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Habakkuk 1, verse 13, it says that God cannot look upon sin with favor. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, the prophet says. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. So long as our sins were on Christ, God then withdrew his favor and his presence from his son, while at the same time still being pleased with his son. Here again is the mystery of the cross, is it not? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Did God ever stop being pleased with his son? No, he couldn't. And at the same time, He turns away his favor. He turns away his presence from his son. 
The darkness over the land speaks of the light of God's righteousness, the light of God's presence being removed for that moment. And then God turns his wrath, his anger, his judgment against his son, though his son did not deserve this, our sins most certainly did. And we're told that what Jesus experienced under that awful moment, we know according to the perfect justice of God, that his wrath against his son had to be equal to what our sins deserved. Imagine that. The judgment against the perfect son had to be equal to what our sins deserved. The reality is that this would have been our lot had it not been for the son stepping in and taking our place. Do you realize this would have been our cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had not Christ stepped in and made that declaration of anguish. So we'd say that that cry to God was expressing the wretchedness of our sin. Second, that cry of anguish expressed the holiness of God's character. The holiness of God's character. And I want you to think for a moment the character of God's justice, his love, his grace, his mercy. We observe in the question of Jesus, why have you forsaken me, Christ? And implied by the question is that Jesus is saying to his father, I've done nothing wrong. The sin is not mine. Why must I be treated this way? What the cross shows us is that neither God's love nor his justice would be violated in order to rescue his elect ones. This is what he was willing to do to express his love to us as sinners. This is what God was willing to do that his perfect justice would not be violated or compromised in any way. Parents, I want you to imagine you're witnessing your child in this position. Beaten, child is being mocked, he's dying, and you had the power to save your son. You had the ability to do so. The cry of anguish by Jesus was a declaration that God would not stop this event. That God would be God. He would remain holy. His love for us, unblemished. His justice, not compromised. It's at the cross that even for the sake of sparing his own son, God the Father would not withdraw his punishment even from his son on account of our sin. God could not simply dismiss sin. He couldn't just turn his back on it. There had to be punishment. Otherwise, God's justice would be violated and compromised, and then he would no longer be God. He would no longer be holy. And if God's justice were compromised in any way, he would no longer be the transcendent God of the Bible. His justice, his love, his grace and mercy, they're on display here in all of their perfections. And therefore, as it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, God not only remains perfectly just, but he's the justifier of those who put their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. At the same time that the suffering of Christ shows the holiness of God's justice, the darkness of that hour also shows the holiness of God's love for sinners. 
As much as God loved his own son, he brought about a plan of redemption that would see his son suffering immeasurable injustice because of God's love for sinners. And therefore it says in Isaiah 53 and verse 10 that the Lord was pleased to do what? Crush his son. Again, the mystery of the cross. God pleased to crush his son, putting him to grief. That's not a morbid declaration of God's pleasure in seeing his son suffer. Rather, because his son was the perfect guilt offering for the sins of God's people, it made possible the making of God's offspring. Or as the New Testament would say, making possible the adoption of God's sons and daughters. We could say that the cross drafted up our adoption papers. God's pleasure was in his son's suffering because of what it would accomplish. And as a result, Isaiah continues the prophecy, telling us what it means that God was pleased to crush his son. In verse 11, Isaiah 53, as the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. God will see the anguish of his son's soul, and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Why was God pleased to crush his son? Because it is through the suffering of his son that God could pour out his love on his adopted people. It made our adoption possible. What God took pleasure in was the perfect sacrifice of his son that made possible the rescue of the people that God loves. And in truth, if you're a believer, Jesus did not come into this world to rescue you from a mean-spirited or angry God. Rather, God sent his son into this world to rescue you from himself. Christ came to rescue you from God, to rescue you from his perfect justice, his his well-deserved wrath, something we deserved. We earned this. And yet God did so. He did all this because of his love for us. Again, we say this took place because God must be God. The expression of Christ's anguish was a declaration of how much God loves us. God was willing to have his son suffer under his judgment because of his perfect love for his redeemed people. And for those that became his offspring by faith, they're going to continue to enjoy that love and that care by their heavenly father. This is what it means for you and I as a believer. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul wrote these words, verse 31 and 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is God's love on display. And we are to be reminded the son was fully cooperating with the will. And we're going to see that in just a moment. The cry of anguish by Christ declared the wickedness of our sins in the eyes of God, but it also exposed the perfection of God's justice And his love. And I believe the cry of Christ's anguish. And third. Expressed the depth of Christ's suffering. It expressed the depth of Christ's suffering. We have seen to this point. The trial. The beatings of Christ. Being nailed on a cross. 
even being betrayed. All of these things came at the hands of men or of Satan himself. Jesus had suffered under the rejection of men, even his own Jewish people. He suffered their physical abuses, their mockery. Jesus also suffered the hostilities of Satan, who attempted to dethrone him when he was tempted in the wilderness. And then Satan seduced the hearts of men like Judas to betray. But on the cross, during the hours of darkness, Jesus suffered under the wrathful hand of his Father, under God himself. The greatest agony that Jesus had to endure for our sins is then heard in this cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Jesus had never experienced this kind of desertion from the Father, I think we can argue that he knew some terrible pain was coming his way. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is according to Mark chapter 14 and verse 34, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It said, he said to his disciples that he became distressed and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus knew trouble was coming. He knew anguish was not far away. And Luke takes this garden experience, he takes it a bit further by telling us that Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, yours be done. And in response, God, knowing the turmoil on the heart of his son, knowing that he must endure all of this on the cross, he sent help to his son. Luke reports, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And Jesus, being in agony, was praying fervently, Luke writes, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. We can be sure of this. The agony of the garden tells us Jesus knew there was something intense coming his way. An angel is sent to encourage, but Jesus nonetheless is sweating droplets of blood in anguish, perhaps not knowing fully what he's about to endure when his father forsakes him. We know that that kind of anguish in the garden was not because of the physical suffering. Other men have suffered that way. There are two thieves on either side of Christ that are going to suffer pain and shame. What Jesus was preparing for was the spiritual torment of bearing our sins and enduring the wrath of God as a result of sin. The cup that Jesus was concerned to drink was not scourging. It wasn't nails in his hands and feet. The cup that he was about to drink in his final hours on the cross was the judgment of God's wrath. And it was given to Jesus against the sins of his people. John MacArthur writes that the cup refers to the agony, guilt, and wrath associated with God's judgment of Jesus on the cross. And I love the way Arthur Pink writes about that cup. He said it was the cup which contained the undiluted wrath of a sin-hating God. That's what Jesus experienced, the undiluted wrath of a sin-hating God. It is impossible, I think, for us to enter too deeply into this realm of suffering with Jesus since we have no ability really to see into the spiritual realm between father and son. However, if, as we read in God's word the many descriptions 
of the eternal judgment that God has appointed to those that reject his son, I think we get a taste of what Jesus was experiencing in those three hours. Think of the many prophecies of the coming judgment for those that reject Christ, the damned who are going to die in their sins, the torment of hell. It gives us a bit of a taste of what Jesus experienced on that cross. And when we do study those scriptures, I think we come closer to understanding even the cry of anguish by the Savior, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What this does, or at least it should do, is it leaves a foul taste in our souls for the sins that so often we take for granted. And fourth, the cry of Christ's anguish, I believe, expresses the devotion of the Son to the Father. The devotion of the Son to the Father. Within the grief that we hear in his words, we clearly see the fidelity of God's Son to accomplish the will of God. As wretched as that cup was that the Father had for the Son to drink, Jesus did not fail to take it and drink it. In the midst of crying out to the Father, having forsaken his Son, Jesus did not say, that's it, I'm done here. I'm not going to suffer anymore. Nor did he call forth his legions of angels to put an end to the madness. Rather, Christ cried out to the Father, and then he saw his redemption to the end. What this devotion to God shows us, that even drinking that dreadful cup of God's wrath, Jesus still trusted in the perfections and the purposes of God. He was trusting that God the Father would do exactly what God promised to do. When Jesus cried, not my will, but yours be done. And in that prayer to God, Jesus was not saying, I've got my will over here, and it stands opposed to God's will. Rather, what Jesus saying, not my will independent of yours, but rather my will is to be joined with the Father. And proof of that is it not the cross. And the expression of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That seals the fidelity of the Son. He held fast to the Father's will. What Jesus expressed here is that his will would not be separated from the will of his Father. And in so doing, the cry of Christ's anguish from the cross provided the basis for our redemption. The very fact that he was suffering as he did was a declaration our salvation was there being made. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The curse that Paul speaks of here is not the curse of men. And to be sure, the Romans and the Jews alike cursed Christ. They mocked him. They abused him. But the curse that Paul refers to here is the curse of God himself that came against his son on account of our sin. And Paul makes clear in Galatians 3 that Jesus was cursed for us because the curse was first on us, was it not? We are already cursed because of our sins. We had violated the laws of God's righteousness. And then Jesus stepped in, and he became the curse for us. 
and taking our sin upon himself, Jesus became a curse for us. And by his bloody sacrifice, by his being cursed on the tree, he redeemed us out of that curse. So the very cry of anguish by Jesus on the cross was a declaration that God's forsaking of him was providing the only possible basis for the redemption of sinners. By him being cursed, we receive the life-giving promise of the Holy Spirit that comes by faith. That's what Paul was declaring. On the cross, Jesus was yielding himself to be forsaken of God in devotion to the will and the purposes of God. Remember, he did not step down off the cross, and he could have. But even in the cry of anguish itself, he is still saying, my God, my God. There was never a time that Jesus separated himself from God the Father. The fidelity of Christ, so on display here. And it is here that Jesus, I believe, believe, leaves us a dramatic example of devotion and fidelity to our Heavenly Father, especially when things go poorly for us in life. None of us are ever going to experience the torment of the Savior in this night and hour, so long as we are in Christ. And therefore, in the lesser hardships that we have to go through as believers in life, we can be encouraged that our Savior did not turn away from the Father, even in the most dreadful circumstances. Why did he not? It's because he trusted in the purposes and the character of his heavenly Father. He knew that God was perfect. And he knew that his purposes were perfect. And therefore, even forsaken by God, Jesus would not retreat from the purposes of God. God the Father had forsaken his son, and his son was innocent, remember. That's why Jesus cries out, why me? He was innocent and yet forsaken by the Father for the sake of God's holiness and love, for the sake of his perfection in justice. Jesus would not abandon his father. Jesus anguished over the Father's wrath, but he held fast to his devotion to the Father's purposes. What the Father had asked his Son to accomplish was good and gracious, though it was costly. How much more are we to trust in our Father? Though he may permit suffering, though he may allow trouble to enter into our lives, while God has forsaken his Son in those dark hours, he did so because of our sin. There may be times when God withdraw his favor from us, especially when it comes to sin that is unconfessed or unrepented of. Nonetheless, even when God chastens us because of his love for us, it is done for our good that we may share in his holiness. How encouraged we should be by that cry of anguish that saw Jesus drinking that cup in full, and yet he did not reject The Father's will. When John writes in verse 28 after this, we now see there was much being accomplished in those final hours for our redemption. And in those three hours of darkness, we know that our sins were laid upon God's Son. God withdrew his favor and poured out his wrath on his Son because his Son had become a curse for us. The Son, never before having experienced a dreadful curse, he cries out to God in anguish. And he did so, reminding us of the awfulness of our sin. 
reminding us of God's perfect justice and God's unwavering love for his redeemed people, reminding us of how much the Savior was willing to suffer for his people out of love, that we might be made whole, and reminding us of the Son's loyal devotion to the perfections and purposes of God, telling us that even when life goes sideways on us, God can be trusted, encouraging us to remain faithful to God, even when there is darkness. The price for our redemption was costly to be sure, and Jesus endured it, knowing that being cursed for us would provide the basis for our salvation. Now, returning to John 19, there's one more point that I want to capture this morning from verse 28 and 29. Because this is a passage that speaks for a, of, of a time of accomplishment. So returning to John 19, the text continues. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Once again, John acknowledges that every part of the cross that was taking place was a fulfillment of God's predetermined plan for his son and the work that he must do for us. This passage suggests that the time of spiritual torment for Jesus had come to an end because it says all things had been accomplished. John writes, and Jesus was about to declare, it is finished. But before he does, there's one more prophetic matter to deal with. And it's the fulfillment of Psalm 69 and verse 21, which reads, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now John does not include the first half of that prophecy as Matthew does. And in Matthew's account, it's toward the beginning of the cross, the beginning of the crucifixion, that the soldiers had attempted to give Jesus wine mixed with gall, or some versions say myrrh. But Jesus was unwilling to take it after first tasting it. Now, this mixture of wine and gall apparently is a pain reliever that was intended to extend the process of dying by the Romans. They wanted to extend this thing to add to the, 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 the gore of it, to add to the violence of it. The fact that Jesus refused to take the narcotic tells us that Jesus intended to have a clear mind throughout the entire six-hour ordeal, as well as being prepared to drink the full weight of the suffering that God had intended for his son. But the sour wine, he would not refuse. And he would not refuse it for the sake of fulfilling scriptures. All things were now complete, John says. It's now time to bring redemption to a close. And in taking the sour wine, Jesus fulfilled what God had prescribed for Messiah. It's suggested by many scholars that Jesus now took a drink of the wine for the purpose of fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. At least this is how many of our English versions or translations read. But it's not hard to see why this detail is important to the, Cal the Calvary story. We recall that Jesus had previously taught that he was the source of living water that all sinners had need of. And I want to draw our attention back to the Samaritan account in John chapter 4, where John, uh, Jesus met that Samaritan woman by Jacob's well. And thinking of the water that comes out of the well, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water is going to thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a wellspring of water springing up to eternal life. Now in this analogy, sin has left us thirsty and facing eternal death. What sinners have need of, Jesus is saying, is the spiritual water that restores life. And that water is only that which he can give. Jesus is that living water. And when sinners drink from him, it will restore what sin had taken away, and the sinner will never thirst again. The analogy is speaking of eternal life that comes through Christ alone. And Jesus Jesus repeats the same offer in John chapter 7 and verse 37, where at the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood up before the people and he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For Jesus now to fulfill that prophecy while hanging on the cross is a vivid expression of what was taking place there on the cross. Because according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in those three hours of darkness, Jesus had become sin for his people. And then afterwards, what? He's thirsty. He became sin for us. And then he is thirsty. This highlights first the humanity of Christ and that he was experiencing the physical suffering even in thirst, adding to that suffering for our sins on the cross. But it also reminds us that sin is the cause of our spiritual thirst even as Jesus became thirsty following the burden of sin that he'd carried on our behalf. Now again, he's not thirsting from his own sinful state but rather he's bearing our burden of sin. That's what caused Jesus to become a curse for those whom he would redeem out of humanity. And what the fulfillment of this prophecy shows is that our king was there on the cross as our substitute. Scholars will often refer to the work of the king on the cross as the penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ. Penal because he was taking our penalty. And for that reason, it's substitutionary. He didn't deserve that. The penalty was ours. He took our place. He was a substitute. And the atonement speaks of what he was willing to give up to be that substitute. Even pouring out his own blood, giving up his own life. This expression teaches us that Jesus took our penalty for our sins, substituting his sinless humanity for us, making atonement, full payment being made on the cross. So that when Jesus declared, I am thirsty, he was doing more than checking off of the list the prophecies foretold in the Old Testament. He was showing us that he was fully occupying the predetermined plan of God to be the Messiah Redeemer of his people. And his thirst signified that he had just become sin for us. The Son of God took on flesh to become curse for us that we might receive, or that he might receive the judgment of God upon himself that we deserved. In his humanity, Jesus took our thirst upon himself that he might be the life-giving water which grants eternal life never to thirst again. Just a quote by C.H. Spurgeon. He preached that part of the suffering of hell will be the deprivation of every form of comfort. Man refused to obey his creator, Spurgeon writes. The time will come when the creator will refuse to succor or 
comfort man. The torment of the rich man comes to mind here. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus went into the bosom of Abraham, the rich man into the torment of hell. And the rich man cried out to Abraham, let me just dip or have Lazarus come and dip his finger in water and touch my tongue. It's an expression of the spiritual thirst of eternal hell. Jesus suffered thirst in our place that we might never thirst again, having received his life-giving water by faith. You see the imagery here. And even Jesus becoming thirsty on the cross, having become a curse for us. And then he poured out his blood in death, saying, it is finished. We'll look at that next week. And for this moment, we have the opportunity to close our worship service with that vision in mind, taking the bread and the cup together. Father in heaven, we pray that you will bless us with your presence now as we give a a hope, a suitable memorial to your son, recognizing his body and blood that was poured out for us and even considering the anguish of his own soul, you having forsaken your own son on account of our sins. And Jesus did not retreat from that calling. He finished our redemption. And we are here to celebrate that this morning for your honor and glory and for the glory of your son. Amen.